0: Are we good? Hey, Okay, Hayes, I'm getting set up here. I just wanted to foot stomp a little bit about the building and just tell you guys, um, this is the first plan that all the leaders have been unanimously excited about. And so uh, we don't argue and fuss a lot, but if you know, Uh, All of us, we have very differing opinions. And so for all of us to be on one mind and excited about it with the level of enthusiasm, that's a work of God. And so I'm just going to leave it at that. Uh, But I do encourage you. Um, I have tons of dreams about what we could do with that space, right, for counseling and marriage classes and ESL classes and... So when I, when I see that, my mind just goes, wow, that's pretty awesome. We could do tons of stuff. And uh, so I am really hopeful that we are able to get it done. Okay, how's everybody doing? Doing good? Finally feels like fall. Yay! All right, has anybody gotten their pumpkin spice latte yet? You people. Really? Okay. Okay church discipline afterwards. (laughs) All right, it's good to be here with you guys. Uh, It seems like it's been a while since I've been up here. It hasn't been maybe all that long, but it seems like a little bit. So it's good to see your faces from this side of the pulpit. If you're visiting today or you haven't been here for a while, we are in week four of a five-week series on, and it's based on the parable of the ten minas, which is found in the gospel of Luke. And I'm not going to read the entire thing, but I do want to summarize it for you so you can kind of see where we've been and what we're trying to accomplish with this series. So this is a parable that Jesus told, and it's a parable of a nobleman who's going away on a journey. The scripture tells us he's going to receive his kingdom. And before he leaves, he calls ten of his servants to him. And he gives each of them a mina, don't know what the mina looks like. I tried to find a picture of it. But it's about three months wages in in that time. So he gives them a fairly significant amount of money. And he tells them, go out and do business. Go out and do business. And I'll return. He doesn't tell them they're going to give an account when he returns. But it's implied that that's what's going to happen. So he goes away for an indeterminate amount of time. The story doesn't tell us how long he's gone. And he comes back, having received his kingdom, the scripture says. He comes back and he calls those people to him, the ten servants, because he, he wants to find out what they've done. What, what have they accomplished while I was gone? What were you doing the whole time I've been gone? The first servant comes and he says, Master, I've made ten more minas with the mina you gave me. Ten, not five. Yeah, sorry. I was public school. I'm just kidding. Sorry. That slipped out. I apologize. Made ten more minas with the mina you gave me. And the nobleman says, well done. You'll be in charge of ten cities. Another servant comes in and says, Master, I have made five minas with the mina you gave me. And again, well done. You'll be in charge of five cities. And then a third servant comes in. And he says, Master, you, I knew you were a harsh man. You reap where you don't sow. And I was afraid to lose the mina you gave me. So I put it in a handkerchief, handkerchief. And here it is. I'm giving it back to you. So he had essentially squandered what he had been given. And the, the nobleman was furious with him. And he said, you wicked servant, the least you could have done is deposit it with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received interest on my money. And he instructs his other servants to take the mina away from that wicked servant and give it to the one who had 10. Well, the other guys, they get upset. They're indignant. Wait, this guy's already got 10. Why are you giving him more? And the nobleman says... To everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Now over the past three weeks, we have been using this parable as a jumping off point to talk about what we as Christians should be doing with what we've been given to invest for our master so that we can give an accounting one day. Mark started us off by talking about knowing and using our spiritual gifts. And then Kent followed that up with understanding and engaging the culture, excuse me. And then last week, Bill talked about what our responsibility is in regards to spiritual warfare. We're in a spiritual battle, we need to be in it. How do we, how do we fight those spiritual battles? And today we're gonna turn our attention to sanctification. And we're gonna do that by answering three questions. What is sanctification? Why is it so important? How does it come about? So what is it? Why is it so important? And how does it come about? When the scripture talks about sanctification or talks about sanctified or sanctifying, depending on if it's a noun or a verb, the basic meaning of that is set apart for special use. Typically, it's set apart by God for special use. And scripture uses those words for lots of different things. Some synonyms for it are holy, consecrated, hallowed. And I'm going to use some of those terms and sanctified. I'm going to use those interchangeably. So when I say something is made holy, I mean it's being sanctified. But it's used for lots of different things. It's used for the altar. In Exodus 30, verse 10, Aaron shall make atonement on its horns once a year. With the blood of the sin offering of atonement, he shall make atonement for it once in the year throughout your generations. It is most holy to the Lord. It also talks about days or times, the seventh day. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. It's also used for God's name. Sounds a little obvious to say, but it's used for God's name. Matthew 6, 9, which is the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And it's also used about people, people groups primarily. Not necessarily individual people, but people groups. So it's used of the nation of Israel. In Exodus, God says, "You are the least of all nations, and I chose you for my own possession, to make you a holy people." And Peter uses very similar language for Christians, it says, "But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness." into his marvelous light. Now in all those cases, what makes something holy or what makes something sanctified is its relationship to God, its association with God. The altar was declared holy because that's where the priests sacrificed, uh, made sacrifices to atone for the sins of Israel. It's where the, the interface between man and God was. The seventh day was holy because that's a day that God rested and in the same way we are called holy as a people because we are associated with God we're chosen by God and it's important for us to understand because our sanctification is not something that happens in a vacuum or that we do for its own sake it's because we belong to God because we're chosen by God because we are set apart by God that we seek to be sanctified okay most of us when we think about sanctification we think of the daily growing in Christ what happens on a daily basis and and that is part of sanctification and we're going to talk about that but there are a couple of other aspects that I want to talk about as well because I think they provide bookends to us and they, they provide encouragement and motivation in our quest for sanctification. The first, excuse me, the first has happened in the past. Okay? At the moment you were saved, you were sanctified. We can see this from 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom? Do not be deceived. No sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, or males who have sex with males. No thieves, greedy people, drunkards, verbally abusive people, or swindlers will inherit God's kingdom. And some of you used to be like this, but you were washed. You were sanctified you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Now, now the Greek word is in the present, is in the Greek present perfect, excuse me, the Greek perfect tense, which means the action happened in the past, but it carries forward into the future. So we were sanctified and we were set apart. But it's so much richer than just being, Colossians uses the, The language of being pulled out of the kingdom of darkness and put in the kingdom of light So you take from one and you put in the other, but it's so much richer than that Because when we were sanctified when we were set apart by God, there is a whole host of benefits that accrued to us I don't have time to get into all of them But I do want to talk about a couple that do have specific relevance to our sanctification And one is right there in that verse you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, justification, that's a 50-cent a word. Theologians use it. And it simply means that when we put our faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, when we accepted that, agreed with God that we're sinners, and that was the only means of payment, God credits our account. He takes from God's, from Christ's righteousness, and he puts it into our account. We are declared not guilty. We are declared righteous before God. That's good news. You guys should, we should be happy about that. That's good. We're, we are not guilty. We are innocent. And the other thing that happens is that the power of sin is broken. Not that we never sin again, but the power of the enslaving power of sin, to use the words of Romans, is broken over us, okay. Now what this has to do with sanctification is that when we understand, we understand who we are, what has been done for us, theologians call this positional certification. And they say that because it's not something we did. We didn't do anything to sanctify ourselves in the past. We didn't do anything to choose God. God did all of it. It's something that was done for us, not by us. When we understand that, when we understand I am justified before God, I am free from sin, out of that should come a deep gratitude that makes me want to obey and be more like God. Think of, uh, think of my dad. So I initially obeyed my dad because I was scared of him. He was a military officer, and not that he was abusive by any stretch of the imagination, but there were very clear rules for right and wrong in our home, and very clear consequences when you violated those rules. I never had to know when I had displeased my dad. I never had to ask, rather, I knew immediately. So I obeyed out of fear. As I got to know who my dad was, as I got to know his story, I wanted to obey my dad. I wanted to make him proud of me. I wanted to be obedient. Now, now was I always an obedient son? Absolutely not. Uh, there were times where I was the opposite of an obedient son. But that desire was to be obedient, to please him. And it's the same way when we understand what we have been given in Christ, it should motivate us to obedience, towards holiness. And there's another aspect of sanctification. It's future sanctification. So this is going to, we're going we're gonna to talk about present sanctification in a minute. we about it in the past. should motivate us to be obedient, to want to be holy. And future sanctification, that one day, as Paul says in Philippians, God will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. One day, we will not be The way we are now We will not struggle with our sin We will be complete And that should give us hope Think of it this way As you're on the road to Colorado Use your sanctified imaginations As you're on the road to Colorado There comes a point in the trip Where the landscape hasn't changed For a hundred miles or so It looks the same Maybe you've even crossed into Colorado But it's just the same For me it's, it's the the stretch from Goodland to Lyman. It's just mind-numbing for me. But then what happens when you get to Lyman? If it's a clear day, if it's a clear day, there's that blue, beautiful blue sky, and what do you see against that beautiful blue sky? Right, You see those mountains. And if it's the right time of year, they still got snow on them. And what what happens? Yeah. Right. You you take a deep breath. You can see where you're going. You can see your destination. In just a little while, I'm going to be in the mountains. I'm going to feel those breezes. I'm going to see the aspens quaking. Let's, yeah, it makes me want to go. Let's just cancel. Ch- Let's cancel church and go. Yeah. Maybe that wasn't a great analogy to use. Okay. But that's what the promise of future sanctification is meant to do for us. Listen, when you are in a when you are in hand-to-hand combat with your sinful nature, when you are struggling mightily the promise that one day God is going to complete your sanctification is meant to give you hope. It's meant to give you that lift that the mountains do to draw you towards greater holiness in Christ. So We remember what God has done for us in the past. And out of that deep well of gratitude, we strive, we want to be holy. And when we're struggling, that promise of future sanctification should pull us, pull us forward. But we're not going to the mountains. We're on the stretch from Goodland to Lyman. So let's talk about that. Because we spend most of our time on the day-to-day. The mountains are great, they're fantastic, get away, but most of our time is spent in the day-to-day, so that's what we want to talk about. This is from Wayne Grudem, it's from his big systematic theology book, and I thought it was a pretty good definition, so I'm going to use it. So sanctification is a progressive work of God and man that makes us more free from sin and like Christ in our actual lives. So the definition says it's a progressive work of God and man that makes us more free from sin and like Christ in our actual lives. With all respect to Dr. Grudem, I would have added it's primarily the work of God. We have a role, but it's primarily the work of God. Any actual movement towards sanctification is occur it occurs because of God working in us. And we can see that tension in a verse like Philippians 2.12. It says, Therefore, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but even more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is working in you both to will and to work according to his good purposes. So Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is working in you. Now me, I want Paul to put a percentage to that. I, I would rather Paul have said, well, God puts in 80, you put in 20. Or God puts in 70, you put in 30. Or God puts in 50, you put in 50. Paul doesn't do that for us. And I think he doesn't do that for us because he means for us to work flat out as hard as we can, but trust the results to him. If God had given me a percentage, I know myself, I would work to that percentage and not not a, an inch past it. God, you said 80. Here's or Here's my 20. You said 20. Here's my 20. Maybe that's just me. But God wants us to work flat out and it is God who works in us. Now, this may be sacrilege and if it is, I apologize, but... What helped me really connect this was The Biggest Loser. So some of you may remember this show, some of you may not. It was on for quite a few years. It was one of the only American TV shows that we could get when we were stationed in Japan. So it was, (laughs) when we weren't watching sumo wrestling, we were watching uh, Biggest Loser. But anyway, it was one of the only American shows that we could get, so we would watch it pretty regularly. The girls may not remember. But the premise of the show was you take people who are who are very overweight and they go to this ranch. And it's more like a spa than it is a ranch. I know Alan's thinking, what? But it's more a spa than it is a ranch. And they work with a personal trainer, first in bigger groups, and then as they eliminate more contestants, they finally get to where they're working one-on-one at the beginning of the contest they show them in the gym and they they can hardly work out in the gym with either out either passing out or throwing up they do a one-mile run and it takes an hour to do but by the end of the show you can see there's some pretty dramatic results so they are spending hours they're spending hours more in the gym than I do and they are running 5Ks, in some cases 10Ks. So again, what does this have to do with sanctification, right? All of these contestants are putting in maximum effort in working out and in dieting, but it is their metabolisms and their muscles and their lungs that are doing the actual work for them to lose the weight and reach the goals that they wanna reach. It's the similar case with us. We are to work flat out as hard as we can, but we are not the ones doing the work. The Holy Spirit is the ones doing doing the work. The other part of Dr. Grudem's definition is sanctification occurs in our actual lives. And that's where I need it and probably where you need it a sanctification that is out here that's ethereal, that doesn't do me much good. I need sanctification in my relationship with my wife and my children. I need sanctification in my relationships with you guys. I need sanctification in my relationships with my neighbors. That's where I need sanctification. This is what David Powlison, who's a biblical counselor, he wrote a short book. Actually, Mike gave it to me maybe 10 months ago, a year year ago maybe. And it's called How Does Sanctification Work? This is what he says. He says, to grow in holiness means you live in more clear-minded hope. You know the purpose of your life. Roll up your sleeves and get about doing what needs doing. You are honestly thankful for the good things. You honestly face disappointment and pain, illness and dying. Excuse me. Sanctification, saint, and holiness speak of daily life. There is nothing more practical than to live with ever-growing love, joy, and purposefulness. There is nothing more eyes-open and helpful than to be maturing in wisdom, hope, and faith. So sanctification is meant to be intensely practical where you live in your actual life. Why is it important? Why should we work flat out? Why should we give everything we have to this? The first is because God commands us to. So it's an act of obedience. That reason alone is good enough to do it because God says to. 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 through 3. Additionally then, brothers and sisters, we ask and encourage you in the Lord Jesus that as you have received instruction from us on how you should live and please God as you are doing, do this even more. For you know what commands we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is God's will, your sanctification. So God doesn't mean for us to just stay where we're at. God means for us to grow in holiness, grow in sanctification. Another reason is that as we're growing in sanctification, as we're growing in holiness, we become more effective for ministry. Mark talked about one of the reasons we want to do the addition is we want to have expanded opportunities for ministry. And as you're growing in holiness, you become better equipped to do ministry. Listen, if, if we aren't growing in our understanding and skill of the scriptures how can you apply it to your life but how can you apply it to others lives which is what we're called to do if you don't understand the power of the gospel and the need for the gospel how can you take that to somebody else show them the way from life to death If we aren't growing in our love for each other, if we aren't doing those one another's, how are we going to call a sinning brother to repentance? How are we going to carry each other's burdens? All those things occur in the context of sanctification. Ministry to ourselves and ministry to others. I want to jump on my soapbox for just It's a tiny soapbox. It won't be a long soapbox. You regularly read things about how Christianity is not relevant or the church is losing ground. We've talked many times about people who don't identify with any religious tradition. One of the reasons is because the church is not the individual church, me and you, we're not growing in holiness. We are not growing in sanctification. We're not offering them anything that they can't get at Starbucks or Target or wherever else. In many, many cases, we don't look any different than the world outside. And many cases, we don't look attractive to the world outside. And all of that is a, is a result of us not growing in holiness, not growing in sanctification. Jesus said that you'll know, people will know you're my disciples by your love for one another. Are, are we striving for that? Are we, are we chasing hard after that? Are we working with everything that we have toward that? Unfortunately, a lot of times, the case is not. And the last reason, excuse me the last reason it's important is because we're going to give an account one day. Just like servants had to give an account to their master for the minas, the way they had spent the minas, we're going to give an account for how we've used what God has given us. Now, it will not be an account about salvation that has been settled once and for all. Remember, we talked about we are sanctified. That's done. We are going to give an account and receive rewards or penalties based on what we've done in this life. 1 Corinthians 3 12 through 14. I think this is the second, after Matthew 7, this is the second scariest passage in the Bible to me. If anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become obvious, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire. The fire will test the quality of each one's work. If anyone's work that he has built survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will experience loss. But he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So again, this is not in regards to salvation. He himself will be saved, but you'll be saved with the shirt on your back. And that's it. Listen, anything and everything that you do in regards to your sanctification and growth will survive the fire. We're wanting now let's talk about the third question. How does it come about? Because this is really what we all want to know. How do we how do we do this? How do I how do I get to grow more? I know this is going to be a complete shock to everyone in this room. The primary way that you grow in sanctification is by engaging with God's word. John 17, 17 says, Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. God's word is truth. When I read Ephesians 5, that I am to love my wife as Christ loved the church, and I am to give myself up for her, and I seek to be obedient to that, it changes me. When I read in Romans 12, that I'm supposed to outdo all of you In love and honor. And I seek to be obedient to that. It changes me. When I read in Romans 8. And I hear about the heights. And the depths of God's love for me. And how nothing. Nothing will separate me. From the love of of God. In Christ Jesus. I am changed. My heart is changed. My affections for Christ. Are stirred up. And I want to obey. Because God's word is not like any other word. You see the passage from Hebrews. For the word of God is living. it should be active. I don't know what translation I got there. Sorry. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword. Penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Have you ever read something in God's Word and you have just been cut to the quick? That's judging. It's getting to the heart of the matter. Have you ever read something in God's Word and your mind just goes, Wow, I cannot believe I just read that. Because God's Word is not like any other word. There's nothing will profit you more towards sanctification than spending careful time in God's word. It's why we harp on it all the time. Not because we like saying it, but we do. But because it's true. We're also sanctified by our relationships. Would that be a shock to you? We're sanctified by relationships in a couple of ways. We're sanctified by good relationships. So... I hope all of you have someone in your life that is a little bit further along than you, who is wiser, can speak into your life, can slap you in the back of the head when you need it, can rebuke you, can correct you, who you can go to for godly counsel. If you don't have somebody like that, look around and find them. Look around and and grab somebody who you think can be that for you. And listen, if you're on the receiving end of that grabbing, please heed that call. Don't immediately think, ah, oh, one more meeting. Ah, oh, one more person. One more calendar thing. Don't do that. Jump into it. Be that for somebody. Proverbs says that iron sharpens Iron. We are meant to be discipling each other, and it's one of the primary ways that we grow. We also grow, I I call them extra grace people in my life. We don't have any of them here, for sure. Right, people that you need a little bit of extra grace to put up with, whether they're believers or they're not believers. We need those kinds of people in our life, too. We tend to shy away from those people. Because they need extra grace for us to put up with them. But we shouldn't. We should embrace those people. Because they will change us almost as much as the godly friend will. And then life circumstances are the third way. That God uses to sanctify us. Charles Spurgeon. He's been dubbed the Prince of Preachers. I don't know if you know who he is. He started his ministry at the age of 16, I believe it was. Maybe it was earlier than that. Used to preach to thousands, thousands of people without a microphone, without amplification. He wrote books, commentaries. He started orphanages, societies to help the poor. He was a megachurch pastor before there were mega churches. He accomplished more in his short lifetime than... All of us in this room put together probably will, will accomplish. He also suffered from debilitating depression for almost all of his life. Sometimes he would not be able to get out of the bed. It was so bad. And this is what he says. He says, no faith is so precious as that which lives and triumphs through adversity. Tested faith brings experience. You would never have believed your own weakness had you not needed to pass through trials. And you would never have known God's strength had his strength not been needed to carry you through. I tell you, one of the worst periods of my life was also the time that I think I grew the most. And it was about 20 years ago when my dad passed away from leukemia. I've talked about my dad before, military officer, served two tours in Vietnam. He was, in a lot of ways, he was my hero. He got sick in March of 1998, and he was dead in November. Had never been sick a day in his life before. I can't remember a time when he was sick. And I was on my way. We lived in Colorado. We were stationed in Colorado Springs at the time. And they were in Pawleys Island, South Carolina. So from March to November, he's in and out of the hospital. At first, they got the cancer into remission, and then that didn't last. And so by October, he was back in the hospital again, and he never came back out. And I was on my way to Florida for a training, and I got a call on the white phone. I don't even know if they have white phones anymore because everybody's got a cell phone. But it was to call my cousin. And my cousin got on the phone and she said you need to change your flight and you need to come to North Carolina. He was at Duke Medical Center at the time. And I hope he's still here when you come, when you get here. So I changed my flight, called my commander back in Colorado Springs and told him what was happening and I got to Duke. And he was still alive. He lasted for about another 36 hours. But he had contracted sepsis. I don't know if you know what that is. It, his organs were shutting down. He was yellow because his liver wasn't functioning. It, it was horrible. It was horrible. And we had to make the decision to turn off the life support. So I'm here with my mother. I'm an only child. I'm here with my mom. Having to make this decision for my dad. It was just absolutely the worst time of my life. I can't. Even, even deployments in Iraq were not this bad. And it left me reeling for a while. I'm going to be honest with you. But God is good. Okay? Because listen, out of that time, when I was weeping, when I was angry, when I was confused, listen, God reminded me of the cross. Where he took on flesh... Where he suffered pain and agony, and where he destroyed death. My dad was a believer. My dad wasn't cheated out of anything. He hasn't missed this life for a nanosecond. I got to see God fulfill his promise to take care of the widow. In hundreds of ways. Small and large. My faith and knowledge of God, my sanctification, grew in a way during that time. As horrible as it was. Grew in a way that they never would have otherwise. I'm convinced of that. Now, were there times where I wish my dad was here so I could call him up on the phone? Absolutely. Is there times I wish my mom wasn't a widow? Absolutely. Listen, God reminds me in his word that he is a covenant-keeping God. He loves me with covenant faithfulness. And I trust that God has only done for me what is right and necessary. God has done me no wrong. Is it hurt? Yes. Is it painful? Yes. But it is—it was necessary in God's providence for me to grow. So life circumstances. Okay. Just a couple more minutes. Now that you guys are all depressed and and sad, what does it look like to be sanctified? How do you know when you're being sanctified? Does it mean that you walk around and you can quote the Old Testament in Hebrew? You can quote the New Testament in Greek? That you can parse verbs? No. That's not what it means. It doesn't mean that at all. Does it mean you lead 10,000 people to Christ? Nope. Not necessarily. Listen. When you are kind to a sibling or a spouse in a tough situation, that's sanctification. When you open God's word and you are excited and you see something new, that's sanctification. When you see somebody around here that's maybe struggling and you ask them a genuine question and you're actually concerned, that's sanctification. Remember Dr. Grudem's definition, in our actual lives. That's where sanctification happens. And that's where you need to look for it. In those hundreds of tiny ways where you say, I acted differently. I wasn't the person that I used to be. I am moving forward. Maybe it's by inches that you're moving forward, but you are moving forward. That's where sanctification occurs. Listen, guys, find those moments. Celebrate those moments. Thank God for those moments. Because they're happening in each of our lives. If you belong to Christ, God is working in your life. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. And I'm going to close with these two scriptures because I think they could close much better than I can. So you guys come up. The last thing on your study sheet says, God will do it. And, and that is such a great promise. If you've, ever, if you've ever walked anywhere with a child, what do you do? You tell them, hold your hand. But what do you do? You grab their hand, right? Because their grip is eh, iffy at best. And if you're walking somewhere, you don't necessarily want them to get lost. You hold on to them. Listen, that is a picture of what God is doing to us. God has got your hand. Whatever you are going through, whatever bumps and turns and dark alleys, God is holding on to you, and he is going to get you to the finish line. His word says it. It is a promise. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept sound and blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will do it. That is emphatic in the Greek. He will do it. There is not a shadow of a chance that it will not happen. If you guys would stand, I want to pray this benediction over you. Uh, it's from Thessalonians. And then we're going to sing. and We're going to, we're going to sing with joy. Because we love God and we love what he's doing in our lives. Now to him who is able to protect you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory without blemish and with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, power, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen.